If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty cake. Except no substitute. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by my amazing friend and colleague, Mr. Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Welcome, Dan. What up, Leslie? Dodgers, two out of three from Boston. That was a thing that happened, and and that I also, it should be noted, predicted would happen. Uh, Though I guess I didn't say it on our last podcast, so I don't get credit for predicting it in this venue. Apologies. Anyway, congrats. Go Dodgers or whatever. But can you also apologize for breaking Chris Taylor? I'm very upset about that. I I didn't have anything to do with it. All right. I'll I'll just go back to blaming Boston for all my problems. Anyway, we're talking about baseball because this is a uh, a slow week in TV news. Basically nothing. So we're just going to spin wheels, right? Oh, yeah, totally. The Emmy nominations didn't happen. Showtime didn't team with Alicia Keys and the producers behind La La Land for a scripted musical drama series. Of course, both of those things happen. But before we get into this week's top five and the Emmy nominations, let's take a look at the week in headlines. As I noted, Showtime is teaming with Alicia Keys and the producers behind La La Land for a scripted musical drama series. Josh Charles has booked his first series regular role after The Good Wife and will star opposite Hilary Swank in Netflix space drama Away, produced by Jason Kadams and Matt Reeves. MTV is reviving Making the Band. Elsewhere, Ted Danson is going to star in an NBC comedy picked up straight to series produced by Tina Fey and Robert Carlock. Danson, who will wrap The Good Place with its final season next year, will play... Becker? Danson Danson will play a wealthy businessman who runs for mayor of Los Angeles for all the wrong reasons. This is really getting in the way of my hopes for a revival of Becker, Leslie. I'm sorry, Dan, and cheers, too. Becker, to me, seems like the show that's ready for a revival. But anyway, Tina Fey, Robert Carlock, Ted Danson, I want to go to there. Yeah, same. Former Glee star Leah Michelle is going to star in a Christmas movie for ABC, which picked up the project from Freeform Studios. It's super interesting because Carrie Burke, who, of course, ran originals for Freeform, is now running ABC. So it's the first of those two networks really working a little bit closer together. And sticking with ABC, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Marvel's first ever live action scripted drama series, will end with its upcoming seventh season. That show's still on? Ugh. Elsewhere, Don Johnson. That show's still on? Don Johnson. Can we just talk about Don Johnson? Somewhere in in the distance, I'm hearing the Miami Vice theme song right now. But he's not reprising his role as Sonny Crockett. No, he is reprising his role as Nash Bridges for a reboot of the former CBS drama that is currently in the works at USA Network. God. I, we, we're we just in a place with no new ideas, Leslie. What? Why is this all happening? And we're and several of our topics this week are going to involve retreads and reboots and revivals and whatever. But Nash Bridges, why? Why was that a, a thing that we required? Whatever happened to that coach revival on NBC, Leslie? Never forget that, Dan. I think their official Twitter feed still follows me on Twitter, which is all that matters. That and the Twitter feed for animal practice. <laughs> 
if I'm picturing the picture, the image of you with the monkey from Animal Practice right now, it's still priceless. Hey, you know, something good came out of that show. There are plenty of shows that nothing good came out of, but that show, I had multiple situations in which Crystal the monkey was on my back. I have a lot of comments, none of them safe for work. Fair enough. All right. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, the Emmy nominations have arrived. To no surprise, Game of Thrones led all nominees with 32. But the big takeaway, at least for me anyway, is that HBO trounced Netflix 137 to, to 117 in terms of overall nominations. The Casey Bloys-led premium cable network broke its own record for the most nominations in a single year, besting the 126 it had back in 2015. Dan, we've had a couple of days now to let the nominations sink in in terms of how things fared and what broke through, things like, you know, Critical Darling, Schitt's Creek. What, what's your big takeaway now? My big takeaway is still having the mind boggle at 32 nominations for Game of Thrones, which for the record is the same number of nominations as FX had. And FX is not some little we don't get nominated for things network. It's it's one of the most critically acclaimed networks on television. And you sort of look at all of the things for FX that fell flat this year, things that have been nominated in the past, like Baskets with zero nominations this time around, Better Things with zero nominations, yet another year with zero nominations for It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So yeah, that, that definitely the 32 nominations for Game of Thrones and all of the things that that meant, all of the acting nominations that that show got and all of the nominations that that meant were not available for other shows and other actors like that there had to be four supporting actress nominees from uh, game of thrones so there was no room for ray seahorn for better call saul a lot of things like that kind of eat at me a little we knew that game of thrones was going to be this last season juggernaut but man was it a juggernaut? And we should note that Game of Thrones also broke a, an Emmy record this year for the most nominations in a single year with, um, I believe, as you said, 32. And it includes a writing nomination for the series finale, which was probably one of the most divisive hours of television or extended episodes of television that I've seen in a long time. However, a nomination for cinematography, but on the finale and not on any of the, oh, it's too dark to see episodes. So And, and nothing, the uh, Starbucks coffee cup did not get a nomination, right? The Starbucks coffee cup and the bottle of water from the confab in the finale, they did not get nominated. Both but... snubs, leading my snubs list, Dan. Still in all, the number of actors who got nominated is ridiculous. And really, it, there were other things that could have been nominated in all of those categories, but we knew this was coming. So that is that is probably the primary thing that is still sticking with me. And and we should note, too, that Alfie Allen, Gwendolyn Christie, and Carice Van Houten all submitted themselves for Emmys and succeeded in breaking through. That means that HBO did not pay to submit them, which is Kind of, you don't really see that all the time. Yeah, it, it's odd. I don't know that I fully understand the story. Our wonderful colleague Scott Feinberg, uh, he of the wonderful Feinberg forecast, which you might have and awards chatter yeah. and awards chatter. Yes, that he had us on to talking about awards on Tuesday. So you might have heard us talk about Emmys already. That's where. Yeah, he wrote about that and. It was hard for me to get a feeling of why exactly HBO didn't do that. Whether it was simply a matter of not wanting to 
distract from a certain number of people and not being sure that it was going to get as not many nominations as it did i don't know because it's like 250 bucks it's not like hbo yeah. can't afford that <laughs> but yeah it feels like a game of politics but i mean it, there's no ill will i mean everyone was on the same page and when it happened and hbo confirmed this this isn't some like giant investigative story here but it's still interesting nonetheless yeah the, the gwendolyn christie one is the one that confuses me because she should have gotten that nomination and it should not have been any question. And they should have known that that was one of the that the episode that focused most primarily on her character was one of the most acclaimed episodes of the season, such as it was. And she is one of the most pervasively loved characters on the entire show. You'd be hard pressed to find that many people who did not like Brienne of Tarth, Sir Brienne of Tarth. Um, yeah, whereas I'm a little perplexed by Alfie Allen getting a nomination, which is not to say that he was bad or anything, just that if he hadn't, I would not have wondered where he was. I would have gone, okay, those are the people who did get nominations. He was not one of them. But yeah, that ridiculous number of nominations. Um, let's talk about Shit's Creek. I mean, that's a, a kind of a, a success story and kind of out of nowhere. The comedy, it's a Canadian show. It airs stateside on Pop, the former TV Guide network, which of course just revived one day at a time after Netflix canceled the show. It was the first three nominations for Pop Network. The series is nominated for Best Comedy, and lead actors Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara both scored acting nominations. The series is competing for Best Comedy alongside the likes of Barry, Fleabag, The Good Place, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Russian Doll, and Veep. That's a crazy success story, Dan. It is. I was less shocked than some people were because I just feel like you could... You could sense that there was momentum around that show. You could sense, sense based on the number of why are you not watching Schitt's Creek think pieces that went up when the fifth season premiered on Pop. You could sense it from the two TCA award nominations that the show got this year after having never been nominated before. But really, I, I could just sense it because it continued to be the show that people would always mention to me that they watched when I had casual conversations with non-industry people. And none of them watch the show on Pop. They all watch the show on Netflix. It's not as if any of them have a clue what Pop is, but it was an example of a show that people just people watch. And I think you could tell that was the thing that was coming in a world in which so many comedies do not make people laugh at all. Schitt's Creek makes people laugh. And so if you compare it to, I don't know, I mean, I think that, Obviously, Veep is an incredibly funny show. Uh, the Good Place is a funny show. Fleabag makes me laugh a lot. Barry, when it wants to be a comedy, is very funny, but it often didn't want to be this season. But Schitt's Creek is just straight up a comedy. And I think some people find that extremely reassuring. It just makes them laugh. But like in a larger sense, how hard is it for a show like Schitt's Creek to cut through this kind of a landscape? I mean, you talk a lot about shows like Rami that, that should cut through as being one of your favorites of the year so far. That, of course, didn't get a single nomination, but yet a show, a veteran show, I mean, Schitt's Creek is ending next year, cut through. I mean, how hard is it to, to do that? It's particularly hard without a consistent vein of critical support. I, I think that the show got much more critical support for this season than it ever previously did. But this is not a show like Friday Night Lights or like The Americans, where every single year it was critics going, man, I can't believe they forgot about Schitt's Creek again. There might have been a couple people who were, but it, it was not the sort of relentless pursuit of Emmy nominations and Emmy legitimacy that, for example, critics would 
say when the Americans would get shut out each year and it would be the okay this is invalidating the Emmys the fact that they keep ignoring this great show shows that they have no clue what the great shows on television are Schitt's Creek never got that kind of momentum and that is where it feels different to me for a show to really go from as thoroughly off the radar as that one was to as very clearly central to the radar as it is. And I would I would guess it's a momentum that will continue because people will now go and they'll watch on Netflix and they'll be caught up and then they'll be, ooh, this show makes me laugh. And again. And then maybe, you know, 20% of them will come back for the new season on Pop and then the rest of will watch it on Netflix when it airs shortly thereafter. And so either Pop will be worried about that or not because, again, if the ratings go up, 20% pop gets to go yay and Netflix gets to go yay. So everyone wins it's one it is definitely it is a very very modern phenomenon where that show came from it it, it points to here is what TV 2019 looks like is a show like Schitt's Creek suddenly popping up. Yeah. We've talked about the comedy race a little bit here. Let's let's head over to drama. Last year, of course, Game of Thrones won. It is nominated this year for, for Best Drama Series alongside Better Call Saul, Bodyguard, Killing Eve, Ozark, Pose, Succession, and This Is Us. It's probably a foregone conclusion that Game of Thrones is going to win here. But one show that is missing that a lot of people might wonder why is The Handmaid's Tale, which won two years ago and was, of course, the first streaming show to ever win the top award. The show, of course, you know, ducked out of the Emmy window this year for season three. However, it, the show did rack up 11 nominations this season for a few, quote unquote, hanging episodes from season two that remained eligible under a new Emmy rule. That's kind of crazy, Dan. It's very funny. And it's very funny because of the amount of time that we spent saying Handmaid's Tale got out of the way of Game of Thrones because that was an accurate assessment. It was a show that delayed its premiere until the summer so that it did not have to go head to head with Game of Thrones. And yet there were three episodes at the end of last season that were not eligible because of, again, the hanging episodes rule. It was too late in the season. And so what we got to see is that there's a difference between the awards that you can get and be eligible for if you're a full series. And so those three episodes were not eligible for drama series. They weren't eligible for Elizabeth Moss. They weren't eligible for a lot of the recurring and regular actors, but they were eligible for writing, directing, cinematography. Uh, you have Bradley Whitford getting nominated for guest actor. So it, it's it's a strange variation in the Emmy rules that allowed Handmaid's Tale to collect a lot of nominations in a year that it wasn't eligible. Yeah, so, 11 nominations <laughs> for three episodes is kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. If you but think then again, I mean, Game of Thrones was what? Six episodes this season? Yes. If you start <laughs> 32 the, nominations? So by that point, it's completely vaguely proportional. It's still, it's a funny thing because we had, got, we had gone to all the trouble of talking about how it was not a player this year. And then there it is, a player, but you still go, wait, how did this show get 11 nominations wait but Elizabeth for, Moss isn't nominated and for season two which yeah. by all I mean you can speak to this better than I can but was pretty much panned I don't think it was anywhere near that universal definitely the finale people were not overwhelmingly happy with it but no it, it remains one of the best looking shows on television so cinematography nominations make sense Bradley Whitford is Bradley Whitford etc etc it's it's just a funny wrinkle within the rules yeah anything else stand out this uh in terms of emmy noms? i was interested to see all the this is us nominations i think that it's almost as rare as it is for a show like schitt's creek to go from completely off the radar to on the radar what 
This Is Us did is it sort of went back up in nominations, which is not the way that things usually go, because it had its big momentum-y first season, then some of the momentum went away, and people are like, okay, we're not really talking about this show anymore, but boom, back in the conversation. So you would think that there had been a dramatic increase in quality for This Is Us this past year, but there was not, in fact, such a an increase. It was just a odd thing. Yeah, lots of guest star nominations. Of course, lead actors for Sterling K. Brown and Milo Ventimiglia and many more broke through in the Best Actress category with her first ever Emmy nomination too. And Toby. Emmy nominee Toby. Again, I have no problems at all with Chris Sullivan. Chris Sullivan is just fine. Toby is not his fault. And Toby was less obnoxious this season than in past seasons. Still makes me scratch my head. Yeah. On the comedy side, too, I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, but The Good Place finally broke through. That's a big, big nomination for NBC. It is, but it also doesn't point to a sort of expanded enthusiasm. So, yes, there it is in the comedy field. It's first nomination in the series category. Which is a breakthrough. But Kristen Bell not nominated. I think a lot of people, myself included, would have been very happy to see Darcy Carden nominated. And she announced the nominations. Yeah, she was right there. All someone had to do was have Ken Jeong say, oh, and by the way, uh, congratulations to you. You're a nominee. And I assume that at least someone when they announced those two for the presentation thought it was a possibility. But apparently not. So, yeah, it, uh, there to me, that's where things become a little weird is, OK, so there it is in the comedy series. But where are the other four or five nominations that should have gotten? But in the same way, how does Better Call Saul get up to 11 nominations? How does Michael McKean get his first nomination for guest star? How are both Jonathan Banks and Giancarlo Esposito nominated? And Ray Seahorn isn't. So the Emmys are weird. Yeah. And, and Fox's Rent Live scored five nominations, including for Variety Special, when it didn't even air live. Yeah, the Emmys are are odd. Yeah. And just, you know, to wrap up some thoughts on, on, on broadcast here, the overall nominations among the big four networks were collectively down this year, 145 versus 160 last year. NBC had the biggest hit down 20 year over year. SNL was its most nominated series again with 18. You know, it's still, you know, Fox was up. ABC was down slightly. CBS was up. It's just less and less a broadcast game. Wrapping up the segment, I do want to mention probably my favorite reaction from all of the, the nominees, and it, that was Sasha Baron Cohen. Dan, have you read what his comments were? I have not, because I didn't really like that show very much at all, and so I don't know what to say, except that lots of people did, and I'm happy for them. What um, was his reaction, it was. I'm just going to read you part of it, just because it was so great. But he did thank Sarah Palin and Dick Cheney, and probably... My favorite part of his statement was, quote, I want to thank my crack team of researchers told to uncover bigotry, racism and hate in the U.S. That took them about 30 seconds. They just started following the president, end quote. I mean, come on. If you're going to have use your platform to say anything, this is the way to do it. Bless him. And I don't disagree with him, but there's just too much of that and the news already and so i can't laugh at this moment yeah well all that and more over at thr.com slash emmys and for more emmy talk be sure to check out this week's episode of scott feinberg's awards chatter where dan and i join matt bellany and mikey o'connell for a panel discussion about all things emmys number two Time for our second segment of the week, and it's sort of a catch-all in one of our very, very favorite conversational topics, namely the streaming wars. 
This week, WarnerMedia's newly named HBO Max handed out a 10-episode straight-to-series order for an update of... Creators Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage and former showrunner Josh Safran will all return for the new series, which picks up eight years after the former CW drama ended. It will follow a new generation of New York private school teens. Dan, nothing screams HBO Max like Gossip Girl. Once again, then I said this last week, it's the expanding definition of things that are now to some degree part of the HBO banner that HBO is now the home, thanks to HBO Max, of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Gossip Girl. To me, it does not seem like a thing they want to be doing to the HBO brand, but it is not my brand, so what do I know? Gossip Girl is a show that I did watch every episode of in its CW incarnation. Of course you did, Dan. Of course I did, Um, and I can't really necessarily defend all that I watched. Sometimes I thought it was good fun and other times i was just playing out the string but i i got to the end so i can make all sorts of fun jokes about dan being gossip girl but it seems like there's no reason why the show had to end and there's no reason why a new generation experiencing the same things couldn't be a, a fruitful and fertile storytelling avenue so I'm, I'm fine with that it's just a question of did the world require this and Maybe the world did require it. <laughs> yeah, but it's also a company, as in Warner Media, that is continuing to mine its library. And, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show that why should why is Nash Bridges being rebooted? Well, it's the same thing. This, these are library titles that their corporate parent are looking to mine. You know, if you do a reboot, it, it provides a new monetary value for the past bank of episodes, which we've seen are in top demand right now. You look at The Office getting five years, $500 million, and Friends, five years, $450 million. I mean, library titles are a huge thing, especially when you look at some of these other streaming shows or even broadcast shows that don't make it to 10 seasons or 12 seasons. Or, you know, there's not many, not many shows today are going to be SVU or Grey's Anatomy. Elsewhere in the streaming wars, uh, the Lorne Michaels produced AP Bio, which was canceled in May after two seasons on NBC. You might not remember that there were two. You might not, in fact, remember that there was one. Has been revived for a third season on NBC's currently unnamed streaming service that we assume will be either called NBC Uni Plus or NBC Uni Max or Comcast Plus or Comcast Max. In any case, it will premiere in 2020. Are you shocked by this revitalization, rejuvenation, resurrection, or is it just the way everything happens and nothing is ever really dead? I was surprised by it because it's not often that you see a show canceled by one media company and then months, just two months later, revived by that same media company. In this case, AP Bio is a show that did particularly well on the digital side. And I think maybe in the last two months, Universal TV and, and all of the people running all those services over there really took a look at those numbers and said, this could be good, you know? So yeah, it cost them next to nothing. It's, you know, they own the show. It's produced by Lorne Michaels. It keeps, you know, they always want to keep him happy. He just re-signed a big deal with them last year. You have to presume that that streaming service is going to have some SNL content on it. It makes a lot of sense when you, when you, when you sit back and look at it. But to me, it is a good example of one of the first shows that's going to be canceled by one arm and then months later revived by that same arm. I assume we will see that 
a pretty fair amount more as we move forward. I think it's just going to be the way things are going to go. And I, I understand. I thought. I mean, that if a show is strong digitally, why not? If it's, if no one's watching it on the linear network, it makes complete sense. Also, this AP Bio does to me feel like one of those shows that is going to find more of an audience as it goes along. I think it is a show with a tremendous young cast as well as some very likable stars at the top. I, I think that it was never as funny as it should have been, but I think that it had a lot of potential. So I, I understand why you would want to remain in business with those people. And it all just becomes more inventory on Comcast Max Plus. Uh, <laughs> and it's another thing to have people watch when they eventually get tired of watching The Office for the 15th time. Why not? It, it seems reasonable as anything, but man, just we could do a whole weekly podcast on great Gossip Girl's coming back. Nash Bridges is coming back. AP Bio's coming back. It's all just so much recycling. Yeah, but you're, this is again, it's you're mining what titles you have and why not? I mean, they're just sitting there, right? So, I mean, look at what Will and Grace did. You know, they were with that NBC revival. They were able to sell that library to Hulu in a huge deal. And I assume, again, we will see more of that kind of thing in the future. Uh, let's see. Sticking with sticking with other streaming stuff, this we're, we're covering all the bases this time because we have Netflix where uh, where where the sky is is falling. Um, would you describe the the news that was announced yesterday as a horrible, horrible, terrifying disaster for Netflix or just a minor blip and uh, recirculation within the system? I mean, I think it's alarming when you see that, you know, in their second quarter earnings, the subscriber growth slowed. Netflix added 2.7 million new members. That's less than half the 5.5 it added last year in the same frame. And, you know, if you look in, into the, the earnings report, the streamer actually lost 130,000 U.S. subscribers. But that's, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it still has 151 million total paid members. That's incredible. Of, of course it is. And this seems reasonable. And this seems like a response to the shifting ecosystem. When you're the only person or service out there doing what you're doing and you have no competition, of course you're going to have unimpeded growth. The minute at which there become impositions on your growth, you're probably either going to level off or even lose some subscribers. I It, it seems fairly reasonable to me, and I, I don't know how to say this. I suspect they're going to see more of it I because eventually Apple's going to exist and eventually Disney Plus is going to exist. Yeah, and, and none of these companies have even launched yet. Exactly. So I think this is already a reaction to people beginning to flinch, but people are going to flinch even more when they actually have places that they can give their money to instead. Yeah, so when Disney launches a $7 a month platform where you can watch all things Star Wars, Marvel, Pixar, and The Simpsons, I mean, that price point is kind of insane. That's yeah, I, basically a, a one Starbucks. I don't think that at any point anyone reasonably could have expected that there was just going to be unimpeded growth forever from Netflix. But still, hearing any kind of decline is is notable. And they still have the, the market lead. I mean, really, look at how much original content they have. And yes, they are losing some of their big library titles. And But they that's why they're spending billions of dollars in doing originals, you know? So what other pieces of information jumped out to you uh, from Netflix's investor call yesterday? They reported a little nugget of ratings information. And, you know, we, we talk about this all the time on top five, but 
what is a Netflix view? It's like seven minutes of one episode watched by 13 people in, you know, 17 countries at the same time in 30 days of view. I, I don't know what that means is what I'm saying. So they said that Dead to Me, which of course scored an Emmy nomination for lead actress Christina Applegate, was watched by 30 million subscribers worldwide. So that means 30 million people with Netflix accounts watched seven minutes of at least one ep- of one episode of Dead to Me. So make of that what you will so i don't have a clue what to make of it just like i don't have a clue what to make of most of netflix's numbers i think they gave some sort of number that like 71 million people watched the latest adam sandler thing but again watched in quotation marks so you had people on twitter trying to be like "Ooh, if that was a movie and you did it by a 13 dollar ticket price what does that mean for box office and the answer is it means absolutely nothing I mean, I'm one of those people who who sadly watched that, but... I heard this was better than other ones. Oh, Dan. I heard. I didn't watch. I'm not giving... I have no opinions because I haven't had the time to watch it, but I thought I heard this one was slightly above the standard set by other recent Adam Sandler direct to Netflix movies. If that is not true... I don't know. I I mean, I would watch Jennifer Aniston read the phone book, but I I would... My time probably would have been better spent watching three episodes of Friends. Phew. Okay. Well, guess 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 what's leaving Netflix. Um. So okay. So that's that's our stuff from Netflix. Though in addition to other things, you had the cancellation of She's Got to Have It, which is a little bit disappointing. I thought that was a two seasons and done. Yeah. A little little disappointing, but I think that it stands there and it's a good show. And Dewanda Wise is a star, and people will know that. Uh, and so last but not least on our roundup of streaming stuff. Amazon is going to do or attempt to do Jack Reacher as a TV show, which... Yeah, in development with a script series order from the creator of Scorpion. And that's in addition to the Jack Ryan show. So it could have Jack Ryan, Jack Reacher. And also uh, Bosch. They've, you know, they're sort of, they're going with but their various... Mean, is it named Jack Bosch? No, he's not named Jack <laughs> Bosch. But I'm, I'm merely saying that, that to me, when Amazon is at its most logical as a brand developing thing. It's when I can imagine them saying, okay, if you like this series, here are 25 books you can buy on Amazon Prime. And so that's why Bosch has always made sense to me as a hit at Amazon. It's why Jack Ryan made sense to me. And it's why Jack Reacher makes sense too. I I will be very interested to see how they cast it, if they can actually find the right person who is a six foot five behemoth of a man and if they can actually make jack reacher as a tv character into much more like the lee child book character than tom cruise ever was able to be because he was comically miscast but yeah so lots and lots of streaming stuff and we just put it all together in a in a big blob but guess what our next topic is also streaming number three Up third this week, and speaking of Netflix, the streamer has edited the controversial suicide scene from the season one finale of 13 Reasons Why, two years after it debuted. Dramatic pause. Dramatic pause. Yes. Two years after. Like, people have been complaining and worried about that scene and what it represented or didn't represent for two years, but they decided last week that it finally concerned them. I I don't understand. But... It's been the mystery of this show from the beginning, and it's it's a place where I, as a critic, have to admit to a certain cluelessness, because I know what I know, I can see the way a show is intended, I can make a judgment based on that, but I'm not a sociologist, I am not a psychologist, and I'm not a child psychologist, so my reaction to that scene was that it was 
trying to be as harrowing and not glamorizing or exploiting of a moment of suicide as they could do. So I can watch it and go, they did not want to glamorize it. They made effort to not glamorize it. You watch that scene and you go, oh, dear Lord, this is a horrible thing. Yeah. And Brian Yorkie, who is the creator and showrunner of 13 Reasons Why, has said for two years, basically the same thing that you did, that they wanted to make sure that that young viewers specifically saw that this is not something that's a glamorous process, you know, that they wanted to show the lengths of which and, and the horrors of it. And he's written guest columns, especially for THR, uh, refuting studies linking the show to increases in suicide among young viewers. So many people have refuted the studies. There's been more studies than we can count that have said that the show is harmful. And, you know, look, I went back and I rewatched the scene before writing the story, and it was a three minute long scene. It was very graphic. And as someone who watched season one when it came out, I remember the buildup to that and thinking that, yeah, that's a really powerful scene. And it makes sense in the context of those 13 episodes as a bookend to what many thought at the time was going to be a closed ended series. And you watch the new scene. And while it's still impactful, largely because of the incredible reaction by uh, Catherine Langford, uh, co-star Kate Walsh, who plays Hannah's mother in the scene, it's just not the same. And yet... I've had enough conversations with people who do have perspectives outside of kind of TV and artistry and who actually are social workers or who work with kids who have problems. And so I've had to come to terms with the idea that artistic intent is not always the same as audience reception and that there were concerns that people who have worked with kids have had about, okay, I understand they're not trying to glamorize this comma, but, and so I understand the temptation here. I just don't necessarily understand why it took them two years in the same way that I don't necessarily understand why the show is continuing to exist and why there's going to be a third season coming out later this summer or this fall. But I guess they decided they didn't want to have this conversation again, that they wanted this conversation to go elsewhere. And so I understand it's required a lot of getting my mind around the difference between what my job is and what other people's jobs are. And, and you're right. You know, from everything that I understand is that when Netflix launches a new season of a show, a lot of viewers go back and start from the beginning, people who hadn't watched it when it aired originally. So if you've got season three coming out, which is it is coming out in the summer, you're going to have a whole new group of viewers going back and starting with season one and watching that and being exposed to that scene. And while I, I thought that that scene was incredibly powerful, you know, look, I, I when I watch TV now, I, I start to think about how my nieces, who are two right now, will respond when they when and if they eventually watch something like that. And do I think that that would be a scene that I would want them to watch? At, at you know when they were at, of course the right age no so I, I my personal opinion I, I commend Netflix for doing it but I also don't understand why it took them two years to do it that's what the, the piece that I don't understand yeah the, Netflix has been having a strange reaction speed to 
I guess, advocacy groups, because we talked either last week, I guess, probably about the Stranger Things smoking situation. And so, look, obviously, Netflix does have to come to terms with how audiences are or are not responding to the art that it's putting out there. And they have to decide, we think this is a thing that's important to stand behind for artistic reasons, or that we think maybe is a concern and we don't want to stand by it for artistic reasons. We'd rather edit it because of the impact we think it might or might not be having. Again, not acknowledging that because they would never want to acknowledge we made a show that is causing suicide rates to increase. But having concern is a reasonable thing. And so I understand. Yeah, it's just an interesting story because it comes down to art versus art interpretation and how different people respond to things and just when you when you finally have enough concerns that you need to take a step back and do something like this. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Well, that takes us to our fourth topic of the week. Number four. Batting cleanup this week, the Television Critics Association's Summer Press Tour, a.k.a. TV Reporter Sleepaway Camp, begins next week. Dan, running July 23rd through August 8th, scores of cable networks and broadcasters, along with a couple of streamers, will trot out new and returning series as they hope to woo a room filled with 200 angry and grouchy reporters and critics who are all trapped in the ballroom of the Beverly Hilton. You you make it sound as if we're inherently an unhappy group, and often we're a perfectly happy group, and the ballroom at the Beverly Hilton is often quite comfortable and pleasant, so it's not... So I'm really just talking about myself here. Oh, yes, but okay. th- you can be grumpy in the THR offices or at home just as easily, so... You know, That's fair assessment. Yeah. But yes, uh, it will be the summer TCA press tour and a great time will be had by all hundreds upon hundreds of panels for TV shows, plus the occasional executive session, et cetera, et cetera. It will be a good time and uh, we will be attempting to score exciting interviews that will be part of future episodes of TV's top five. And as a fair warning, it's possible that not every episode will premiere at exactly the time you're necessarily expecting it to, but we'll be keeping things as regular as we possibly can. I just want to allow for the possibility that maybe an episode might pop up on an unexpected day. Yeah, we are very excited about some of the guests that we are in the process of lining up. But, you know, Mr. TCA president, there's a lot of programming that's going to come through in the next couple of weeks. My most anticipated session, of course, is and will always be an exec session. This year, I think probably the most anticipated panel out of all of them is going to be Casey Bloys and his time before the press. And of course, he's going to be tasked with addressing the controversy over the Big Little Lies directing flap, the divisive series finale of Game of Thrones. Um, And at the same time, he can take a victory lap with HBO's strong performance at the Emmys. And similarly, he'll be able to maybe or maybe not provide distractions from controversies by doing who knows what. Maybe this will be a good time to say the dailies from that their Game of Thrones uh, spin-off prequel thing. They're so great. We're going straight to series. Ask me only questions about that. I don't know if that'll necessarily be the thing that'll happen, but otherwise it's just going to be a lot of questions about Andrea Arnold and whether they treated her well on Big Little Lies, uh, whether it matters that not everyone loved the Game of Thrones finale and the fact that they got an awful lot of Emmy nominations. So really, they're probably perfectly happy. So 
Positives and negatives, I'm yeah. guessing, from if, that one. If I could take a wild guess how Casey is going to field the Game of Thrones question, it's going to be the, pointing to the fact what, what, that we talked about earlier, that the series finale got an Emmy writing nomination. Uh, and and I, maybe let that speak for itself. I think probably that, plus also the idea that, and I think this is probably true, we talk about how divisive that finale was. I, I suspect that if you were to... Look at general reactions outside of various echo chambers. For the most part, people are probably perfectly happy with that finale, and certainly Emmy voters are, and who yeah. really matters other than Emmy voters? Yeah. Um, elsewhere, there'll be a couple other exec sessions, including Mayor of Television and FX Chief John Landgraf, ABC's Carrie Burke, and the CW's Mark Pedowitz are all expected to join the TCA and take time before the press. God, I can't wait to hear uh, Mark Pedowitz's answer on uh, how many more seasons of Supernatural there are going to be. What? One more season? Yeah, at least it's got Right? Oh, wait, we already talked about that last year. We did. And, and you continue to insist no spinoff. No spinoff. I continue to insist probably no spinoff we're actually going to see, but people are whispering. They're not going to try again, Dan. <laughs> they are not going to try again. Other panels that I think are going to be interesting will be Josh Schwartz will be there to support Hulu's Looking for Alaska and will probably be hijacked in that panel by questions about Gossip Girl for another network, for another outlet. By us. Yes, of course. Because we got questions about Gossip Girl. Yeah, and then there'll be a couple of farewell panels, Dan. Speaking of Supernatural, the stars will be on hand to say one last goodbye, as will the cast of Arrow and Power from Stars. Yes, so lots of different audiences will be acknowledged for their favorite shows departing, and then there will be new shows. We will get, perhaps, to actually see an episode of Watchmen. I would like to see an episode of Watchmen at some point. but It's probably the other, and on the programming front, one of the most anticipated of TCA. And then we will see if any of the... New broadcast shows attract any buzz. You can always tell, will there be panels for comedies where people will go, ooh, the panel was funnier than the show? Uh, will there be panels for big mythology shows where the showrunners make it clear they actually do have a plan and they make us believe it, et cetera, et cetera. There are lots of ways that shows can come into TCA Press Tour with very little buzz and can come out with some excitement and, frankly, just as much chance of the other way around. I never forget the, the panel for Jane the Virgin when that came out. That was the very first time that, that the press got to meet Gina Rodriguez, and she used the TCA stage better than anyone I've seen in my career. And she made an impassioned plea and spoke of her experience of only being approached to play the maid. And she basically used that platform to captivate an entire room of critics. Her speech went viral, and look at her now. Yep, there are always a couple breakout stars from TCA Press Tour, and you want to be the network that has that star. Is there one that, that you remember, Mr. TCA President? You've been doing this a hell of a lot longer than I have. I think it happens with some regularity, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the show is going to be successful. I think that someone like uh, Diane Ruggiero Wright, who has worked on a lot of very good shows, including iZombie and Veronica Mars, she had her first show as a creator, which was that Elizabeth Riesler show on CBS that no one remembers. She had a fantastic panel there, and the show bombed so hard and forgettably. What was that show called? I do not remember what the name of that show was. I remember that show. I remember watching and liking Elizabeth Reeser, and then, of course, she popped up on Grey's Anatomy a couple of years after that. Or maybe that was, am I getting the order wrong? But, but that was a fun little comedy. Not that I can remember what it's called. The show 
was called The X List, and it was a bad show. On the other hand, the panel for that show was a really, really good panel because Diane Ruggiero Wright is very entertaining, very smart, and did a good job of making it sound as if she had a plan for the show, and maybe she did, and it just never came to fruition. So yeah, good panel does not necessarily equal successful show, nor does bad panel necessarily indicate failed show, but it's always fun. Yeah, and of course, we will be parting ways with one key member of the TCA this year once the awards are completed. Dan, congratulations on a long and successful tenure as TCA president. It has not yet reached that point, but yes, August 3rd will mark the end of my TCA presidency and the beginning of my no longer giving a bleep. <laughs> well, with that, let's move on to our fifth and final topic. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Number five. This week's new arrivals include Netflix space drama Another Life, starring Katie Sackhoff, as well as new seasons of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee and Queer as Folk. Over at Sci-Fi, the final season of Killjoys debuts, and Comedy Central's Southside also launches this week. Dan, what you got? And don't forget that there's a new season for the people who care about such things of Last Chance You, which is, for a certain demographic, a very, very popular show on Netflix. I understand that it has a large audience, but probably not every audience. And definitely, if you are a, the kind of person who would be enthused by a TV show about a junior college football team, it's a really good show. And the new season is actually very, very interesting, and I recommend it strongly. And at some point, I need to finish my review of that. Um, I think, among other things, people should watch. HBO's been doing this fun thing this summer. They've been doing weekly documentaries for a long time, and it's one of my favorite things that HBO does. But this month, they're doing a bunch of two-part documentaries, as if to say, more story than a two-hour movie, less story than a 10-hour miniseries. And so a couple weeks ago, they premiered I Love You Now Die, which is really an interesting documentary that is pretty much guaranteed to leave you feeling infuriated and to produce conversations with people who feel different ways. Uh, it is a murder mystery where none of the answers are clear. Next week's installment, Who Killed uh, Garrett Phillips, is very, very comparable. It's from terrific documentary director Liz Garbus, and it's another one where you will spend the entire time being infuriated, and you'll go back and forth on, on the mystery. It's another of those two-night things, a little bit longer than I Love You Now Die. I think it's been a good thing. And then also this weekend, and you alluded to this with the HBO executive session, we get the series or maybe season. Which one? Do we feel like there's going to be a season three? I mean, we uh, didn't feel like there was going to be a season two. That is true. Of Big Little Lies, which many people will write about pretending that they have some sort of awareness of what Andrea Arnold did or did not turn into the editors and what the series did or did not become. I don't necessarily know that I could tell you what went wrong from an Andrea Arnold and Jean-Marc Vallée perspective. I just don't know that there was enough story for this season and how it suddenly became a people yelling at each other courtroom drama probably has something to do with David E. Kelly's instincts, I assume. Uh, but. I'm not sure I'm interested in the story that they decided they were eventually telling, but it still is a fun show to watch for the Meryl Streep of it all. I don't think that has changed, but yeah, definitely some enthusiasm has gone out of the balloon. 
Yeah, I mean, this was a, a show that won pretty much every major award last year or two years ago, I should say. And now it kind of feels like it's lost a large share of its critical goodwill. I think probably that is true. I don't think that'll have any impact, for example, on Meryl Streep being nominated for an Emmy. Um, I was just or, about to say the same. Or any of those people being nominated for Emmys. And I've, I haven't hated the season, just I was able to be really excited about the Meryl Streep of it all after three episodes, and now I'm less excited, and I don't know as we head towards the finale what I care about and what I'm supposed to want revealed or where I'm supposed to want things resolved. And that's a little disappointing because at least the first season, whether you were invested or not in the murder mystery of it all, you still watched the finale wanting to find out who did it and why and what the context was. I don't know that I'm as involved in whether or not Nicole Kidman's character is going to get custody of her children. Maybe that speaks to a flaw on my part, or maybe it doesn't, but I'm certainly going to be watching one way or the other. Yeah, well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. We will be back next week with highlights from Comic-Con and the very first of our special TCA episodes. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to check out this week's episode of Series Regular, which also features Dan joining host Josh Wiggler for a deep dive into Season 3 of Stranger Things. Until then, be sure to subscribe to TV's Top 5 on all of your various favorite podcasting platforms. If you like us, please rate us. If you really, really like us, please review us. And if you want to say hi to us, you can always tweet to us and talk to us on the Twitter. We like to hear from you. And if you have questions for upcoming episodes, our email address is TV's top five. That's the number five at THR.com. Email us. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Dan.